on the um, whole volume of teaching that is available to us. And just very briefly, to give you a bit of an idea how it has come about and how authentic we can presume it to be. And the Buddha was a historical person, and there is no um, doubt about it. It has, he has been found in historical um, reports. He was a prince in a very minor kingdom in the north of India, and had an interesting childhood. One of the things which are interesting about his childhood are, is the fact that when he was about 12, he spontaneously uh, started meditating in the meditative absorptions without anybody having taught him or mentioned it to him. He remembered that later in his life. He was married at a young age, was about 19, wife was 17, was his cousin, and um, 10 years later a baby was born to them. He named that baby Rahula, which means the Feta, F-E-T-T-E-R, Feta. And um, the same night that the baby was born, he had decided that he wanted to find the um, end of suffering for mankind, wanted to find a solution to the constant problems that beset mankind, which he very simplistically enumerated as birth, decay, and death, a birth, decay, sickness, and death. He went into the forest to two very renowned meditation teachers and learned the meditative absorptions. The first one taught him the first seven, the last one, the eighth one, the second one, the second teacher. However, both of them were unable to show him the path to insight. And since he realized that the path to calm was not sufficient, he went off on his own. Although the teachers beseeched him to stay and teach himself. When he was in the forest, learning these meditative absorptions, you remember having done that as a 12-year-old or as a child, and uh, which of course facilitated the um, renewal of that practice. He then took off on his own. It wasn't possible to find a teacher, particularly in the India that he lived in, which was very much uh, spiritually and religiously inclined. However, up to this day, we can find that the path to calm the absorptions, which are very significant um, and uh, 
important pathway are considered to be all of it. So there was no, it is not difficult to understand that he couldn't find anyone to show him inside. So when he then went to this famous Bodhi tree in what is today called Bodh Gaya, and he sat under that tree, he again used his ability to go into the meditative absorptions to calm the mind to the extent that it becomes far-reaching and all-embracing. And when he came out of that, he formulated the Four Noble Truths with the Noble Eightfold Path. And although at first he felt reluctant to teach, the story says that one of the highest Brahmas, one of the highest gods, convinced him that he should. And he started teaching. Now, the way he taught was by, very often, by question and answer. He was questioned about something, and the discord he, he gave was an answer to that question. Sometimes he also just sat down and gave a talk. At other times, he would give a talk to masses of people, sometimes to just a small group, sometimes to one person. These teachings are called suttas. In, um, in our tradition, in the Theravada tradition, we use the Pali, which is a derivative of Sanskrit. And in Sanskrit, it would be sutra. With an R. In Pali, the um, R's are very often uh, dropped, and the consonant is doubled, S-U-T-T-A. Whereas in Sanskrit, it's nirvana. In Pali, it's nibbana. Whereas in Sanskrit, it's dharma. In Pali, it's dhamma, with two M. So we use always the Pali version, because it is said that that is the uh, language the Buddha spoke, although it wasn't called Pali. It was more likely called Magadha, which was the area where he lived. We call it Pali. There is no other um, writing or language available outside of the Buddha's teaching in Pali. So Pali is always the Buddha's teaching. If anybody talks about Pali, it's always concerned the Buddha's teaching. There is no other word available in that language. We have excellent dictionaries from Pali into English. They are a little difficult to handle because you have to know the Pali alphabet, but that is not very difficult to learn. The Pali language itself does not have an alphabet. It was never a written language, only a spoken one. When the suttas were written down, they were written down in Sinhalese alphabet. And that's why in Sri Lanka to this day, one is of the opinion that one has a monopoly on the Dhamma because it was written down in the Sinhalese alphabet. When the Buddha taught, his teaching was learned by heart by those of his disciples who really wanted to know. 
naturally there were hundreds and thousands of people who didn't care. They just listened to it because they were curious or it was something interesting or because everybody else went, you know, like going to the Easter parade or something like that. But uh, there were those that wanted to know. And um, they learned it by heart because it wasn't being written down. First of all, the language didn't have the alphabet. However, the main reason also was that it was considered to be sacrilegious to write down spiritual teachings. You're supposed to remember them. And many of his uh, bhikkhus, his monks and nuns, knew the teaching, whichever they had heard from beginning to end, because that was their whole um, life's content. So when the Buddha died, there wasn't a single written word. It was all in the um, memory of his main disciples. And three months after his death, the Venerable Kasata, who was one of the main monks, organized the first great council of Arahants. An Arahant is an enlightened one. In order to recite the suttas, the discourses, and also recite the Vinaya, the rules for monks and nuns, so that they would be kept in their purity and correctness, that they wouldn't be adulterated. This took place, this great council of Arahant took place, and one of the main reciters of the suttas was Ananda, Ananda was the Buddha's cousin and had been his attendant for 25 years. Ananda was totally devoted to the Buddha, loved him more than his own life, and had made it a uh, request or a condition, I should say, of the job of being an attendant that he would be able to hear every single discourse. And if he should ever miss one, that the Buddha would repeat it to him. Rananda had a chance to recite, and you will find that practically all of the suttas, if not all of them, that you will be reading, start out with, thus have I heard. In Pali, that's evam me suttam. That means, in English, thus have I heard. And that's Ananda saying, thus have I heard. It's not the Buddha saying it anymore. The Buddha hadn't heard anything. He was speaking. It was Ananda who says, Evam me sutam. Evam is thus, and me is I, and sutam hearing. He then, very often, if not always, gives the place where he has heard it, and the people who were present. Sometimes he just gives the name of the clan. Sometimes he actually gives the name of the single people that are there. By gives them by name. The reason for that is, that he wants to remind the other bhikkhus, bhikkhu is the Pali word for monk, the other bhikkhus of the occasion that they can check him whether he's reciting it correctly. So he's saying, like we would say, remember, 
when we were on, in that forest where we saw the kangaroos hopping and this man came by and I said to you, so we're putting a, a location to it and a time element, that's what he's doing. He's saying in that and that place at such and such a time there were such and such people, remember? And that's what we heard. So he's putting it to the test of accuracy with the other bhikkhus, which was the whole uh, reason for this great council of Arahants. I suppose there have been 1,500 there, but we can't take that as a correct number because uh, derivatives of 500 are used in the Pali Canon as um, meaning many, so we don't know whether it's really 1,500. But it would have been uh, quite a number of them there, something like that. A, a monk called Upali recited the Vinaya, the rules for monks and nuns, which are of no interest to you at this time, because they're only of interest to monks and nuns. And um, the word sutta means a thread. The literal translation of the word sutta is thread. And that means the thread on which the pearls of the Buddha's wisdom were threaded to produce a complete necklace. We use that word sutta only for those that were canonized. Now that canonization took place at the Third Council of Alliance. This very first one things were recited in order to keep them in mind. Now obviously everybody who was there had been alive at the time of the Buddha, had heard it themselves, and could check out in their own mind whether it was correct. Second Council of Arahants took place 120 years later. And by that time many of the main disciples of course were no longer alive. And at that time already some discussion took place about the accuracy of that what was being recited and because of that the third council of Arahants took place again about 130 years later and at that time it was decided to write them down because there was too much argument going on what was really being said and what wasn't being said and because there was no alphabet, it was being written down in singly script. And in order to facilitate the remembering from the first council to the second council to the third council, the suttas were put into certain order. Now the Buddha had given these discourses at his discretion when he thought they were important to be said. Now, with the Buddha not there anymore, they were put in a certain order, namely, long discourses, the Digga Nikaya. Nikaya means collection. They're all Nikayas, collection. Digga means long. The ones that were of a certain length. Next one is Majima middle length things. That's the one we are using, the middle length things. The third one is the Samyutta Nikaya, thematic collection. They were put together 
where the themes fitted. They fitted together. The topics fitted together. Angutra Nikaya, numerical. That's a very interesting one. Well, they're all interesting. But the Majima and then the Angutra are possibly the most interesting. The Angutra is a numerical collection which has 11 books. And book one, for instance, talks about everything that the Buddha said, there is one of that. One mind, one body, for instance, particularly mind. So there is one mind, and mind consists of this and that. And book two talks about everything that he said there were two, mind and body. Book three, of three things. Book four, for instance, the Four Noble Truths. Book five, the Five Hindrances, and so on. Uh, each book contains a whole gamut of discourses where he used numbers. Five of this, six of that, seven of this. It helps one to remember. The only way we can ever practice anything is we, if we remember what it is that we're supposed to be practicing. So remembrance is very, very important. And then, Digger, Majima, Samyutta, and Angutra. And then the fifth one is the Sutta Nipata. Sutta Nipata is considered to be the oldest one. It's a very small one and con contains a uh, miscellaneous collection of different things. It has the loving kindness uh, discourse in it, it has the uh, great blessings discourse in it, many different things which are considered to be uh, definitely the oldest ones, the first ones that he ever spoke. How that has been established, I can't say. Uh, scholars have been at this for about 105 years now. The Pali Tech Society in England is the one that did the um, investigation and are the first ones that did the translation. The first translations were made into English were made by uh, a devout Catholic couple uh, who the husband was one of the British um, governors in India uh, in about 110 or 10 or 20 years ago and she continued his work when he died and uh, naturally some of it is not correctly translated because of the lack of practice and also because it was something entirely new. They had to use Sanskrit and the rest of uh, other languages in order to help them. And much of this is now newly translated. The one we're using, the middle end saying, was newly translated by Venomanyana Moli, an English monk who was a linguistic genius. He spoke about 12 languages and uh, went to Sri Lanka to become an ordained uh, did an enormous amount of scholarly work in the 10 years of his life as a monk, died at a young age of 55 of a heart attack. He translated not only the Middle End sayings, but he also translated the Path of Purification into English, which is an enormous um, accomplishment, and other translations. He left this manuscript in handwritten behind when he died. His writing is uh, extremely difficult to read and it took years to decipher the whole thing and finally make a uh, book out of it, a new book is, uh, appearing. Now out of these five collections, we have 
if we count every small sutta, we have about 17,000 suttas, discourses of the Buddha. Naturally, one can't know all of them. It takes too much for us to remember. Although I was told that there are, still to this day, two or three bhikkhus in Burma, or at least were at the last council, who are able to recite the whole of the Pali Canon from beginning to end. Um, whether these two or three are still alive, I don't know. The Council of Arahants has now become the Buddhist Council. We can't get 1,500 Arahants together anymore. And has continued. The sixth council uh, was took place in Burma some years ago. And uh, I think there was a, a, another one, but I'm not sure now. Anyway, they are continuing. It happens very rarely. And at that time, um, matters of scholastic importance are discussed in order to again reassess that not many mistakes creep in in the translations. The only way one can really understand the suttas properly is through practice. So we have um, Catch-22. We need the sutta in order to practice. We only understand it when we have practiced. There are some, of course, which are of the utmost importance, some suttas. And the first one, which we're going to uh, discuss and read, is one of those. It's a cornerstone of the whole of the teaching. It's a mindfulness sutta, a sutta on mindfulness. And as a cornerstone, it describes a state of mind which all of us have and which we don't use sufficiently. If we were to use it sufficiently, we'd see the world in a totally different light. But since that is not always comfortable, we try to avoid that. In the um, practice of the teaching, it is essential that we um, do not pay attention to whether seeing things as they really are is comfortable or not, but that we are committed searchers for truth. If we are committed searchers for truth, the only way we can ever be that is by paying attention. But paying such detailed attention as we've never paid before. The detailed attention which brings us into a realm of understanding which is different from the one that we usually have. And that's what the Satipatthana Sutta tries to tell us. Sati is mindfulness. Patana, foundations. So foundations of mindfulness discourse. Sutta, the discourse. We have suttas in the Pali Canon which are spoken by some of the Buddha's great disciples. But as a rule, we call the Buddha's discourses suttas, but there are some by his great disciples. Anything that happened after it was written down are no longer called suttas in this tradition. There are other traditions. There's a um, 
particularly, of course, the Mahayana tradition, which embraces Zen also and Tibetan, which are using the word sutta for the teachings of their great masters. It's just a different way of approaching the same matter. Um, this, uh, this Pali tradition, this is also called the Pali tradition, the Theravadan tradition, it's um, also called the oldest tradition, the fundamental, um, disregards as a rule the, um, the teachings of later teachers, although that is not uh, necessary to disregard, but since there's so much material which comes directly from the Buddha, it, um, it is really an imposition on one's own mind to try to get even more in there than just that. We have an, such an wealth of information from the Buddha himself that um, it would be difficult to do any more than that. Although quite a number of um, teachers in the West use some of the um, uh, Mahayana, particularly Zen teachings, which are also extremely um, informative and helpful, particularly the Prashnaparamita, the um, um, the Heart Sutra, which is um, the uh, cornerstone, so to say, of the Zen tradition. This one that we're doing today is a cornerstone of our tradition. And um, all these different traditions, of which the two main ones you could say is just Theravada and Mahayana, um, are after the same thing, after one thing only, and that's enlightenment. And there are a little different approaches from different sides, but basically it all comes down to the same thing. And quite apart from that, I might add at this point, since I'm already talking about different things, that in the mystical tradition of Christianity in the Middle Ages, it all boils down to the same thing too. Unfortunately, that particular tradition is almost totally lost, not quite, and there are uh, some regeneration efforts being made, and if that should be so, and it should become wider known, what the Christian mystics of the Middle Ages actually practiced, one will see that there's no difference. It all comes down to the same thing. There is one truth which overrides all our imaginations and ideas. There are different ways of getting at it, but when one gets nearer to it, all these different ways also merge, because the truth merges. It is the one truth which is transcendental to humanity and transcendental to this little globe of ours, which is all very limited and small, and hopefully these suttas will help us to get a little more of an understanding there. Now, if you have any questions while I'm either talking or reading, now about what I've been saying, and now when I'm reading, you can ask them. 
the um, idea might be best to do it like this, that every time I sort of pause after an, a little um, a paragraph or something, if you have questions, then ask them, rather than trying to keep them all uh, in your mind till the end. It's very difficult sometimes to keep the questions in mind. So um, after each paragraph, if you have a question, ask. So if you have any questions at this point, you could ask them also. Yes. The uh, first council, we know for sure that that was a council of Arahants. In the second council, it is considered that there were other than Arahants there. And uh, it would stand to reason that the Arahants themselves would all look at it the same way, although that is a presumption, we're presuming something. We can't know. Because even, you see, I mean, an Arahant most likely also has opinions about something or other. Although when it con concerns the Dhamma, one would assume them to all know, um, see it in the same way. But um, that's a presumption, we can't know. But it is said that in the second council of Arahants, other than enlightened ones also came. And the third one for sure. There weren't enough of them around anymore, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Anything else? Yes. When you said um, that the Buddha went into the eighth absorption under the Bodhi tree, yes, and he knew that that that, that the experience of the eighth absorption wasn't enlightenment. I knew that before that. Yeah. Okay. But he carried that knowledge. Mm. So what did he do? I mean, did he just stay concentrated in that absorption until he until the mind broke? To something that he hadn't experienced. Now, the way the story goes is that he went into from one to eight and down to out again, from eight down to out again, and as he came out, that he reviewed what he had actually experienced and then formulated that into the Four Noble Truths. So, not within the absorption, but after having done them. And this is the way we teach it also that first is calm and then is insight. Or we could say, first is calm, then is re recap, and then it's inside, or as first inside, and then recap. So that's the way it always goes. So that's the way it is told. And um, there are, of course, exact description also, which I haven't mentioned, on how this actually takes place in the mind when it goes from the absorbed state into the state of total letting go. But uh, presumably, because it isn't told about the Buddha's experience, as he already had done so much practice of that, as he had came out of the absorption, the whole thing was already completely clear to him. And that's when he formulated the Four Noble Truths. So it isn't within the absorbed state that the enlightenment um, experience takes place, although the enlightenment experience
Can you still see, or shall we turn the light on? Can you see? Like you put it written in English. Into time? I don't know. Hundreds of years ago. So I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure how long ago. But it's got the Pali Canon in time. Yeah. And the Burmese have the Pali Canon in Burmese. I won't read that introduction, it's not uh, important. Um, thus have I heard, actually it says thus I heard, but it's always said thus have I heard. On one occasion the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country. There is a town of theirs called Kamasadama, and there he addressed the bhikkhus thus, bhikkhus. So again, the um, Ananda is giving the country, the, uh, which is like a province in northern India, and the town, Kamasadamba. And he addresses them as, uh, says, Bhikkhus, and they say, Venerable Sir. And the Blessed One says this, Bhikkhus, this path, namely, the four foundations of mindfulness, is a path that goes in one way only, to the purification of beings, to the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, to the disappearance of pain and grief, to the attainment of the true way, to the realization of Nibbana. Now this translation is interesting in so far that he says it's a path that goes in one way only. It's very difficult to know whether this is a proper translation because the Pali is ekayana, which means one way. But it doesn't say a path that goes in one way only. So quite often we find that this particular sentence is translated, there's only one way for the purification of beings. Not it goes in one way only. But I think this is better, that it goes in one way only. The foundations of mindfulness do this and nothing else. Uh, when we say that there's only one way for the purification of beings, we say that nothing else will purify. But that's not true. There are other things that will purify. Naturally, without mindfulness, you can't even purify. But this is the best translation, I think. And we have four things that will happen. Now, why does it purify beings? Why does it surmount sorrow and lamentation? Why does it help us to have pain and grief disappear? Of five things. Why the attainment of the true way, very often also translated as the attainment of the noble path, the realization of Nibbana. Because when there is mindfulness, complete and total attention, nothing else can arise. So, for instance, if you do walking meditation and you're totally concerned only with the movement of the foot, it is impossible to become upset, angry, worried, fearful, whatever. 
And when it's impossible to come angry, fearful, worried, because one is totally concerned only with that what is happening, one purifies automatically. Now this is why meditation is an automatic purification, even if the meditative state only lasts for half a minute, half a second. That's a half a second of purification. At that time, when the mind is totally concentrated on whatever it may be, the walking, the breath, the mind state, whatever it is, total concentration, there is no way that we can let anything negative arise. So this is the purification, which comes through the word mindfulness here, of course also uh, applies to daily living, but in particular we have the purification to the the mindfulness in our meditation. Because our the attention on the breath is anapanasati, mindfulness to the, on the breath. Whatever we do in the meditation, no matter where we're at, when the mind is totally absorbed into something, even only for half a second, that's purification. It surmounts sorrow and lamentation because it can't arise. And also, when there is complete mindfulness, which means that we're totally objective. And when we're totally objective, all sorrow and lamentation is nothing but a feature of existence. Nothing else. It's never personal anymore. Total objectivity takes away that personal involvement. We see it from a standpoint of an overall universal standpoint. Mindfulness helps us, and it's the only way that we can ever have this overall uh, universal standpoint. The surmounting of sorrow and lamentation and the disappearance of pain and grief are both the same thing, of course. Um, was repetitive, and because it was written down the way it was transmitted verbally, it's written down repetitively. Uh, it is uh, always like that. When one uh, writes down a verbal teaching, there are always duplicates. The attainment of the Noble Eightfold Path or the True Way. The attainment of the Noble Eightfold Path means that one becomes that path. That's the attainment of it. Attaining it. And the practice of the Noble Eightfold Path, of course, are consistent also includes mindfulness. Um, there probably will be a sutta, I don't remember now, which contains the Noble Eightfold Path. If it doesn't, we will, I will find one. Um, whereas this, the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness, is the cornerstone of the teaching. The Noble Eightfold Path is the essence. It's the uh, essence of practice. Not the essence of the uh, um, liberation, but the essence of practice. Without mindfulness, without attention to what one is doing, one can't practice, obviously. And when the mindfulness has become perfect, that means that one has become this noble eightfold path and the attainment of Nibbana. So mindfulness leads in that way only. Mindfulness is the means 
not an end in itself. It's a means. Meditation is also not an end in itself. It's also a means. That has to be clearly understood. The, these means are essential because otherwise our minds are going in the old established rut of worldly considerations. And worldly considerations cannot possibly uh, bring us to universal understanding. But mindfulness is just that formation in the mind, that mental state, which can become so penetrating and so one-pointed that one sees the um, minute details, the analysis of all that there is. And that brings one to a different understanding of reality. And these are the five things that this is doing. Now he's going to talk about the four foundations. Any questions about any of these? Now, what are the four? Here, a bhikkhu abides, contemplating a body as a body, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides, contemplating feelings as feelings, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides, contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. He abides contemplating dhammas as dhammas, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Well, I think you'll agree with me that if one doesn't discuss it and talks about it, one doesn't know what's being said here, no? which is the case in most sutta. One has to really get into the meaning of it. Okay, contemplating a body as a body. Well, that's not so difficult to understand. That just means that we don't confuse what we're doing. We know that when the body is moving, that that is physical. And we contemplate, we put our attention on it, for instance, in the walking meditation, or for instance, in the, um, um, when we eat, we realize that the body is moving, that the hand is grasping the spoon, the spoon is Going, going into the food, it's being lifted, put into the mouth, that there's chewing and swallowing. And um, when we get up, we know we're getting up. We're watching the body as a physical entity which has many results. The first one is that we don't lose our concentration when we get up from the pillow. And this is something that I'd like to recommend to you at this point, to practice this here during the day as much as you can possibly remember. And as the time goes on, more and more of it, that you actually watch and you stand up and you walk to the door, pull down the um, handle, open the door, walk out, go down the steps, wherever you go, whatever you do, sit down, 
when you dress, when you go to bed, when you go to the toilet, when you eat. Watching the body as a body action, it has that first result of the concentrated state of mind not being interrupted. That's the first thing. The second great advantage it brings is the fact that this very objective onlooking to the body takes away a very small amount, maybe in the beginning, but certainly starts to take away that ownership feeling. This is a body. It's not necessarily called me. It's just the body. And the more objectivity there is in watching that, the less identification there is. That these are two extremely important aspects of the mindfulness. The first one, uh, possibly even overriding the second one, because the concentrated mind is the mind that brings these insights. Huh? Is clear or something else on body? If you can, yes. I'm not making any idealistic statements. I'm making suggestions. Yes. The principle is to be continuously aware of the body. Now, obviously, there are three other foundations of mindfulness, which we'll just come to now. And there are times when, they, um, when it's not appropriate to be concerned with the body. Maybe one of the others will have pride of place. Well, obviously, that's only common sense. Huh? We'll talk about the others in a minute. Anything else about the body? The attention to the movement. Now, obviously, we do that also in meditation. Huh? The breath is body. Watching the breath is being attentive to body. Walking meditation. Watching the steps, the movement, the attention to the body. That if we are really attentive, we would, we can never get into any states of um, um, negative states of mind. And this is the great purification system. Hi, I just want to find that really helpful. Um, you putting it like um, looking at the body as an entity. Mm. I've never heard it said that way before, and I found that really helpful. Yes. Yes, that helps one to get a little bit less identification. Yes. Now, also it says here, putting away covetousness and grief for the world. Now, covetousness is obviously everything we want to get, which we don't have, and grief is the, the reaction to everything that we get that we don't want to have. So if we're mindful, fully mindful, fully attentive, both of those states of mind cannot arise. So when we're really attentive to the body, that is our purification system. And then again, we don't have any of this um, bother 
of wanting things which we don't have or being sorry about things which we do have. The next one is feelings as feelings. Now feelings we must um, consider as two. Sensation, which is physical, and feeling, which is emotional. So we can say sensation and emotion in order to be sure that we know what we're talking about. Now obviously, let's say you're very attentive to your walking uh, along the path, the movement of the foot, right? And all of a sudden you hit your big toe on a stone. Well, obviously, the attention to the movement is going to be disrupted by the attention to that unpleasant sensation. It can't help that. It is an, it's ob uh, natural. It has to be. But that doesn't mean that one has lost one's mindfulness. It means one has shifted from the body as body to sensation as sensation. However, if then the mind says, Oh, how stupid I am. Why didn't I watch out? Then it isn't sensation, sensation anymore. Then reaction has set in. And then, of course, we have to watch the next one. So if sensation is sensation, is pure. There's no karma involved. It just is. This is an unpleasant sensation. When the reaction sets in, it's no longer mindfulness. Then we are coming back to our old ways of being. We are usually reacting. Well, I could probably say we're always reacting. Here we can learn not to. Is that clear? Okay. The same goes for the emotional states. Let's say we are very carefully what going down the steps, very attentive to each step, and all of a sudden uh, a feeling comes up, I I'm sure I forgot to write that very important letter that I should have written and feel very, very badly about it. I feel really upset about that. Well, you've got to pay attention to that feeling of upset. And instead of then continuing that feeling of upset, the attention to the bare feeling, the bare attention to that feeling dissolves just like the labeling of the thoughts. When we meditate and there's a labeling of thoughts, it dissolves the thought automatically. Well, of course, a new one comes up, but the one that has been there is dissolved through the labeling. So if we see our upset objectively with total mindfulness, it's just a state of mind which has arisen and we're watching it, and it will disappear. There's no need to be upset. Which is a difference between watching oneself mindfully and actually being that state, particularly the, the uh, negative one. Now that is a very important aspect of mindfulness, which is also very useful in daily life. Because all these emotional states do arise in daily life, and when we react to them, we are in the soup. And uh, that happens, you know, too often for comfort. And this is where we learn not to. We just watch it. We just see it as it is. It is a state of upset, all right, or it's a state of anger or boredom or whatever it may be. 
And as we are watching it, we will also, of course, become aware of its natural disintegration. There is nothing in the world that has arisen that doesn't disintegrate. It's just not possible, including this person. Everything that has ever arisen must disintegrate. Now, emotional states are one of the quickest ones to disintegrate. And so the watching of that is a very important aspect of purification and concentrated states of mind. Is that clear? Or any questions on that? Um, I, um, when you say watching it, so we're watching it objectively, but that also includes the actual experiencing of it, doesn't it? The experience comes first. First arises the upset, or let's say from upset, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter what it is. That's the experience of it. And then, instead of continuing that experience and being identified with that experience, we become the objective observer of it. And as we are objectively observing this particular thing, what has arisen, this particular emotion that has arisen, we no longer need to be identified with it. It dissolves on its own. It's kind of like a, a quick, like, like, a, like a flipping of a change of energy or a change of focus, and that yes. cuts out the experience. Mm. Yes. First, there is the experience of it, otherwise, you've got nothing to watch. So it's got to be first. So then you watch this thing that's there, and then you are not no longer the experiencer, but the observer. And as you're the observer, the whole thing disintegrates, it can't stick around. to re-arise in order to, to make it become a reality again. I have to go through the process maybe ten times. Well, it uses, oh, I see, you're talking about positive uh, experiences. Um, you need the memory in order to make the experience re-arise. But 
the memory is not enough. The memory is a trigger. That's all. The memory tells you, I know that. I've had that. What was it like? How do I feel? How did I feel? You've got to be able to resurrect the feeling. Well, it depends what it is. If it's positive, yes. Yeah. And if it's important. If it's not important, no. Yeah. If that memory concerns insight, it has to be revived constantly. Otherwise, it's not going to be lived. So it's got to be revived constantly. And just by reviving the knowledge, it's not quite enough. There's got to be that um, in back of the knowledge, there has to be also the feeling that arose when the knowledge arose with it, which will, which happens. That's not. Well, that would be a new new occurrence then. The old occurrence has to be re resurrected through memory and re um, reviving it. If it's new, yes, then then the mind may play tricks and say, "But I know this one already." If it does, well, it's just playing tricks. So, uh, in that case, you're saying that memory is the trigger, and then the same feeling must be further trigger. No. Um, not quite. Memory is a trigger to bring you back to a certain uh, experience which is valuable to revive. I mean, it should, memory is not necessary to use for anything which is not valuable enough to revive. If it's valuable to revive, you need the memory as a trigger. And then, when you get that, when you have triggered that, then the um, experience brings that you have now remembered, right? brings with it a feeling, and then only is the experience real. Without the feeling, the experience isn't real. It's that old business of biting into the mango. You've got to taste it yourself. See, it's not knowing what the mango tastes like. It's tasting it. So there has to be that underlying feeling with the experience. Experiences are never um, real unless the feeling that arises with the experience is also um, realized. Because we live all our lives according to feelings. We think we live according to thinking, but we don't. Yes? the thoughts that arise in the meditation. Well, yes, meditation or yes. If there's a feeling of worry, then the thoughts keep arriving. But the worry itself is already a label. And when you see worry um, objectively, if you stand in front of it and look at this worry, and you can't get rid of it, the way to get rid of it is to question it. See it clearly, think, what am I worrying about? Okay, get an answer. 
Keep questioning the answers until you see the absurdity of it. See if you can't get rid of it. But the word worry is itself already a label. That's already a, the, uh, the content of the thought. We're going to get to that in a minute. That's what's called Dhamma here. It doesn't have to be, you're not supposed to label, um, I am now thinking of my stove at home. That's not the label. The label is I'm worrying because I didn't turn it off. <laughs> the worry is the label. Oh, of course. Oh, sure. The tendency is there. Hmm? Yes. Yes, that takes time. The tendency for the mind to keep thinking when it shouldn't, when we would rather it didn't, um, is so ingrained that it not only takes time, but it takes also another resolution. And that resolution is not as easily made. It's a resolution not to look for ego support. You see, thinking is ego support. We don't get any support for our ego unless we think. That's why this uh, um, great, supposedly great philosophical insight, I think, therefore I am. You see, it is uh, the only way we can underwrite the experience of I am when we think. So there's a, it, it, it takes time. It takes um, uh, also, of course, determination. And it takes that understanding. And it takes a fair bit of... You see, we all want to get peace from, from meditation. But it takes a fair bit of inner peace to get there. So it takes a fair bit of inner peace to reach it. And that usually comes with a bit of time. That's certainly that tendency to keep thinking is there, yes, naturally. Got hmm? the feeling somewhere. Contemplating mind as mind. He abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. You see, that's what you're supposed to put away, covetousness and grief for the world. That's worry. <laughs> <laughs> Grief is worry, no? Um, contemplating mind as mind means that the realization arises that the mind is thinking, and with it, the um, the um, objective um, uh, cont- uh, the objective observance of the mind thinking, and with it can very easily in meditation arise the. the um, understanding that it's totally unnecessary. And when that has become ingrained, that it's totally unnecessary to think in meditation, we can eventually come to that understanding within ourselves that it's also totally unnecessary to do that during the day, unless it's unnecessary to be. But we have to get come to that. We can't just put that up as an, um, like an, uh, you know, poster or a banner and say, oh, well, that's right, now that's great, you know. We have to slowly work our way towards that. But unnecessary to think is not quite exactly the same. It's unnecessary to think because we will eventually realize that thinking is dukkha. 
thinking is not pleasant. It's um, irritation. You see, it's movement. And every movement has irritation inbuilt. So to be able to just be, and not not be, but be without thinking, is far more peaceful and restful than to sit there and think. So when we are able to observe the mind as mind, to observe the thinking process as in an objective manner, we will see that it is, first of all, irritating, it's uh, unpleasant, it's dukkha. It is unnecessary very often. Sometimes, of course, it's necessary. You've got to, you know, attend to something. You've got to think about it. Um, that also, that it is something which arises and ceases constantly. It has a, the quality of, um, like, um, um, ebbing and waning. It just has this movement in it all the time. And this, again, our objective observance helps us to eventually come to the point of not owning this mind, of not being its owner. And of course, when we're no longer its owner, we don't, we don't have to think all the time. Be quite, we're quite happy to let it rest for a little while and meditate properly. So the, medit the mindfulness of the thinking process brings us to the understanding that thinking is also just a process and not an individual um, identity that we are, which we think our thinking. People argue and have, um, and have arguments, opinions, um, difficulties with each other because one thinks this way and one thinks another way and they can't agree. And that's how people get into strife with each other. That's the uh, famous relationship problems that everybody has and has experienced here and there. People just don't think the same way. And because everybody identifies with that mind process of thinking, there comes the problem. No? In reality, it's just a process. It's happening. And we can only, in a situation such as this, can we become aware of that. In daily life, things happen too fast, usually. We've got to respond. Uh, somebody talks to you and you say, well, just a minute, I've got to watch my mind process. I mean, it just doesn't work, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just everything happens too fast. So here, where we, we do have that opportunity to watch that thinking process and actually see it um, um, arising like bubbles or like a, a, a electric um, contacts, uh, whichever way, and then just coming, going, coming, going. And there's nobody there that, that owns it. It's happening. This is a very, very important way of watching. And also, the first step, again, is to see that the thinking process is just the same as, as a activity of the mind, just like breathing the activity of the body. And now, obviously, we can't voluntarily uh, say, I won't I'll stop breathing because we'll be dead. But we can, fortunately, say, I can stop that activity. I can go in there and attend to my inner 
um, be and don't have to think about it but experience it. So this is the way towards the uh, interiority, the interior aspect of ourselves when we see the mind process, the thinking process as process. Is that clear? Or any questions on that? Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. You have to think at the moment, <laughs> otherwise you won't know what I'm saying. can't do the training in daily life. The training you've got to do here, but the um, uh, match is then played out in daily life. After you've had your uh, sufficient training, you'll win the match, no doubt. What happens is that you no longer believe that your own thinking is correct. You no longer believe that you are the thinker. And you no longer rely, neither on yours nor on anybody else's. They're just thoughts. They're just thoughts. What you rely on from then on is your inner being, your inner feeling. You can call, well, I don't like the word intuition. I'm not going to use it. It's not intuition. It's an inner certainty of being. And the thought process arises um, as a result of that, if you have to um, give word to it. So if you don't have to give word to it, there's no need for it. So this is the training ground. And that's out there is where we play the match then. We don't have to react so much. And if we do react, in other, sometimes, I mean, we're forced to sometimes. We can react with equanimity, calmness, and with the least disturbance to ourselves. You know, I mean, just sort of, and in a smooth way, smooth and harmonious. Well, that's number three as far as the um, foundations are concerned. The fourth one is called Dhammas here. He abides contemplating Dhammas as Dhammas, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Dhammas is Dhammas. Well, the word Dhamma is a word which is used in many different connotations. Here it's spelled with a small d, and when you see it's spelled with a small d, you will know that it means factors or processes. Um, when it's spelled with a large d, with a big one, capital D, then it means the teaching of the Buddha. Um, or it can mean truth, law of nature, and those things. But with a capital D, it means the teaching of the Buddha. With a small d, it's the, um, um, well, in this case, it means the content of mind. And here it concerns wholesome and unwholesome. Now, when you see dhammas, um, process, factors, what you there, um, first you've seen the mind process as such, huh? 
And now you see that the mind is throwing up something negative. Well, obviously, we will know that that can only be to our own detriment. It doesn't matter how awful the other person is. If we get angry, upset, negative, um, and uh, resisting to that person, we ourselves will feel badly. That's useless to do it. So we will see that there's a negative reaction in the mind, which is an unwholesome dhamma, akusla dhamma, an unwholesome dhamma. Now the word dhamma here, as I say, it's a factor, the, the content. So here we use our labeling process that we've learned in the meditation. As we have learned the labeling in the meditation, saying, oh, this is worry or fear or, or anger or dislike, that gets carried over into daily life. And as we see ourselves reacting, thinking negatively, we will see that this is not only against our own purification, but it's also against our own happiness. It brings turmoil into our own lives. It makes us unhappy. That's why it's so hard to find really happy people, because people do not know that it's entirely up to them to keep their minds in order. It's so simple, it's almost ridiculous. And yet, nobody does it. If we didn't have the Buddha, we'd never try either. You just watch the mind state. As we learn mindfulness through meditation, and we can't help but learn it, I mean, there's no way out of it. If we are trying to meditate, we've got to try to be mindful. We will use this eventually, habitually, in everyday life, and watch our mind state. And it's very interesting also that the un unwholesome ones, the negative ones, are preceded by an unpleasant feeling. As one becomes more and more mindful to oneself, one realizes that this unpleasant feeling is there. It's sort of a feeling, sometimes it's a feeling of fogginess. Sometimes it's a feeling of heaviness. Sometimes it's a feeling of as if one is sagging. There's a lack of buoyancy. There's a, a, a lack of uh, energy. Everything that's de negative, that's unwholesome, reduces one's mental energy. So that preceding feeling then evolves into the unwholesome feeling. Now, most people can not become aware of this unpleasant feeling in the beginning, mostly of the un uh, negative uh, thought, but that is something, if we watch it with mindfulness, objectively, again, we're the observer, we can see that it's totally unnecessary. There's no need to make ourselves voluntarily unhappy. And as we see that clearly, we can see it dissolve. These are the four foundations of mindfulness, body, feeling, divided into sensation and emotion, the uh, mind process, the thinking process, and the content of the thought. And obviously, we need to be attentive to the one which is appropriate. However, you will find in your practice here during the day that the body takes pride of place. 
It is uh, very active. It is visible, touchable, and therefore easiest to uh, um, be mindful of. So as you see the body taking pride of place, you will not need to attend to the others. However, at times you will have to. Now, is that clear? Are there some questions? Last one, content of mind, and then daily practice. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm sure I've heard you say before, um, maybe it wasn't in relation to four foundations of mindfulness, but consciousness, um, you define as sense consciousness rather than as content of thought. Yes, but the, uh, the consciousness which you're now referring to is one of the uh, four aggregates of mind. The four aggregates of mind, you see, we, we have five kandas, five aggregates. One is body, and then four are mind. And they are feeling perception, mental formation, and sense consciousness. And sense consciousness is the contact we make through our senses. So mindfulness refers to mental formation in two um, divisions, one, one mind process, one content of mind. It does not refer to sense contact. It refers to the feelings, the body, the feelings, and the two aspects of mind. So sense consciousness is one aspect of the five aggregates. The Buddha is extremely um, adept and interested in analysis of ourselves. So he breaks us down into our bits and pieces. And this is one way of breaking it down in the mind, and this is another. But we can, oh, now I may add to this, you can use mindfulness onto the sense consciousness. There's no saying that one shouldn't. It's just that he's not breaking mindfulness down into that. Mm -hmm. But it's perfectly all right to do it, to watch the sense contact, and then see the feeling that is arising from it, and from that feeling the mental reaction. It's a very useful way of being mindful. Mm -hmm. very proper also. It's just not that he's breaking it down into that. Mm -hmm. That would be a good definition of guarding the sense doors. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Guarding the sense doors where we either do not use the senses for uh, going outward, but trying to stay within, or also when the sense contact has been made and the feeling has arisen, that, or even before the feeling has arisen, that we just plain stay with sense contact and do not allow anything further to happen. Why, where is it getting the energy to, to 
Why uh, sometimes w uh, you can get rid of the uh, negative emotion easily and other times you can't? Is that the question? Yeah, I mean, ideally it would be nice as soon as it's gone into many games to me. Well, it's mental strength. Uh, a person like the Buddha, for instance, um, would not even be in a position where that would have arisen. He would have gotten rid of the feeling of it, dropped that away. It's a strength of the mind, a power, mind power. And the more the mind is able to um, go into the meditative absorption, the more power it absorbs, the energy of the mind. And powerful mind doesn't have to stick to anything negative. The longer we stick to anything negative, the less power we have to remove it. So um, as we practice more and more, we obviously get more power. And that's why it's very important to use the mind also when it gains some power in the right way. That's the right way. That's what the Buddha called the Arya it is the noble power. Which means to pay attention very quickly to that feeling. Yes, to, to be... To get a yeah. Rid of it. It arises because we are imbued with six roots, a three a evil and three good. And until we are uh, totally purified and enlightened, we will have those six roots to deal with. Three of them are helpful and three are not. Three are, three are uh, wholesome and three are unwholesome. Uh, no, I won't talk about them, but I will mention them because <laughs> it's already an hour and a half. <laughs> I will, I will, uh, uh, they are uh, the unwholesome ones are hate, greed, and delusion, and uh, which is here translated as covetousness and grief, taking greed, and uh, delusion is our illusion of self. And the opposites, of course, are love and uh, generosity and wisdom. And you have all six. So they keep on arising. And, and because most people have never heard of them, they don't make any great effort to strengthen the one and get rid of the other. Um, but we are, it's our choice to do that. So they train pairs like that, they have their roles. Yes, yes, oh yes, we have all six. And you see at times, uh, one will be stronger than another and will feel fine, will feel, feel on top of the world. And then other times, so the other one comes up and you say, oh my God, it's dreadful, you know, everything's wrong. Because the, the old one has come up, the uh, more unwholesome one has come up. Yeah. And we, of course, think it's out there that's happening. <laughs> 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 Everything quite clear, particularly also with con concerning uh, how to use it in your practice now during the day. I mean, this too that goes on, I will continue tomorrow, but this is all we're going to do tonight. And it will, it does give pointers um, how to watch and how to practice mindfulness in daily life, in, in your daily uh, activity there. 
of the time, as much of the time as possible. I just got a question um, that I haven't been tried investigating it, and I haven't got an answer, and it has got to do with negativity. And um, the trigger being a situation. Uh, I mean, I, I've spent a few weeks in Sydney, and um, and so I repeated a situation that had happened there before. And what I observed was an exact negative feeling, you know, that has happened time and time again before in the past concerning these particular people in this situation. And um, I was just wondering, like I've never experienced that type of negativity um, in myself in regard to any other situation or people, and I was just wondering what it was that was so exact. You know what I mean? That, that, um, what it was that brought up that negativity, or what? No, I understand yeah. that, but its particularity. I just found quite interesting. Well, there could be several reasons. One could be, of course, that you see something in those people that you particularly dislike about yourself, too, because other people are on mirrors. So that's a possibility. But the um, continuation of the negativity is, of course, detrimental to your own happiness. So um, the um, way to counteract that is to um, try and get compassion going for whatever it is that one dislikes about the other person because obviously the other person is having a difficult time in some manner or form. The more we can arouse this compassion within and this loving kindness or whatever we like to call it, um, the less of that negativity will remain within because we're only hurting ourselves when we keep this negativity. Why it is so particularly strong is that what you're thinking? Um, no, not even particularly strong, but just particularly able to identify. I mean, see. It's a really simple situation, like these people didn't call me back, <laughs> you mm. know, when, when I rang them. And that's happened before, countless times, and mm. I could just feel this, well, like these feelings of sadness and, mm. you know, sort of deluded kind of heaviness mm. in, in mm. response to that. Yes. that I've felt before when I've done right. right. Well, that is a, could be an occasion for inquiry and saying, why do I feel like this? And the first answer would be, well, they, they ought to be ringing me back. Well, why ought they? Because they're supposed to pay attention to me. Well, why ought they pay attention to me? Well, because I think they should. But should they really? And you will eventually by questioning every question, come down to the bottom line again, which is ego. It always is. There is no other bottom line. There is only one. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the first reaction can in future then be, well, they haven't called me back. Well, well, it's their problem, not mine. Maybe they didn't want me. That's fine. You know. There are many people in the world who don't want to see one. I'd like to be left in peace. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that questioning is very useful because it is, um, in the end, in the beginning it's particular. In the beginning you have a particular situation, right, and a particular answer. But as you go further and further with it, you get a universal answer. 
which fits every occasion. And so it will be very easy in the future then to use it again. So even with such a simple thing like a telephone policy, it's good to do. Thank mm-hmm. you.